Welcome to this week's podcast. I'm Stuart McCullough. I'm the CEO of VHAA. And joining me for this week's discussion is the Director of Workplace Relations, Tim Nagel. Welcome, Tim. Tim, you know the drill. We're going to show a clue uh, on screen. And on the basis of that clue, you're going to tell us what you believe the subject for today's discussion uh, is. That uh, clue is coming up on screen right now. And for the benefit of those people who are listening to this podcast rather than uh, watching, could you describe the clue? Well, it does look like it's a uh, electrical motherboard. So there's a, it's very busy with a lot of cords and wires going everywhere. And would you describe that as simple? It doesn't look very simple. It looks complex. Uh, indeed, it is complex. And based on that, what would you say is the subject for today's discussion? Well, I assume we're talking about the maintenance agreement and the electrical component of that agreement. Tim, you couldn't be more wrong. No, indeed, we are talking about uh, the consolidation of agreements and in particular with regards to the complexity. Uh, but we've already done some work uh, on this subject before, Tim. Yes, uh, so we had done some work on this. So the podcast follows a draft discussion paper on the consolidation of agreements that we distributed to members in Bulletin 2939. And we'll be going a little deeper behind the logic that supports that paper and covering the feedback that we've received from members since it was distributed. Before we get started, we should talk about the reason for developing a position paper. So it is something that's a little bit different uh, from us. Uh, what we're seeking to do is to, to develop a position on important issues with the input from members, uh, but also to provide a clear focus for ongoing discussion. And to develop a narrative. Yeah, developing a, a shared narrative is something that um, you often see unions do really well. And the board at VHA have been developing a new strategic plan, and part of that is in, is to do more expressing and advocating positions within the field. So this position paper is a step in that direction. Uh, it is. So do expect more to come on other subjects. Um, so going to this position paper, though, on the consolidation of agreements, um, the first issue is, you know, it raised the question, what does the current agreement map look like for our sector? So the first thing to note is that not all agreements apply to all employers. Yeah, some of our agreements uh, have universal or near universal coverage. That is, they apply to all um, members or, or all health services or community health services um, as, as such. And can you give us an example of agreements with universal or near universal coverage? You know, the most obvious example is the nurses agreement, which uh, that has the broadest agreement, uh, the broadest coverage, sorry. It covers both health services and community health uh, centres as well. And uh, there are others? Uh, so the health and allied management and admin agreement covers all uh, public health services, for example. What about agreements with more targeted coverage? So there are a few of those. Uh, the, the mental health agreement uh, applies really uh, just to designated mental health services, which uh, is a, a narrower uh, group. The maintenance agreement uh, agreement is another example. There are a few, but those are two examples. So at its highest point, how many agreements might a Victorian Public Health Service have to manage? Up to 12. And for community health? Community Health Centre may have to manage up to eight. And what are the consequences of having such a large number of agreements for one enterprise? So there are a few. Uh, the, so the first thing we should do is say that um, having this number of agreements is extremely fragmented uh, when compared to health services in 
in other jurisdictions or other parts of the public sector. It's unusual. It does raise the question as to why it is that the industrial landscape is so fragmented when compared to other parts of the public sector or other states. Yeah, it does. So there is no adequate reason as to why there is no benefit um, to, to having that kind of arrangement. If there's no clear reason as to why we should have so many agreements, the obvious response is to say, why not have up to 12 agreements? So that's the question that the paper answers. Uh, primarily, uh, we do that by focusing on the central issue, and the central issue, going back to our clues, is complexity. And the obvious response to that is, what's wrong with complexity? So it's not really a matter of, of what's uh, right or wrong. It's more a matter of considering and engaging with what complexity means. So the paper goes to that issue by stating that complexity is cost, inefficiency, and inequitable. Let's talk, talk more about those elements. Yeah, absolutely. So it has to be said that cost and inefficiency always go together. Yes, the paper describes them as inextricably linked. And describing them as inextricably linked may well be an understatement. Um, the key point is that costs, uh, it costs money to administer that many agreements. That doesn't necessarily need to be the case, though. Uh, if the agreements had a common terms, that complexity would be reduced. So that is certainly true. Uh, but I should say that increased uh, commonalities is where we started. And by trying to establish greater consistency between agreements and procedural matters, for example, uh, but that has been difficult to establish and it's been difficult to maintain. Why is that? So different unions have responded differently to the idea of greater commonality. Some are supportive, uh, but some have actively opposed it. It's also complicated by the fact that bargaining occurs at different times, so having a common time to engage on common terms is hard to come by. Um, but the issue is, in reality, bigger than just common procedural terms. But how do the issues in terms of cost and efficiency arise, or inefficiency arise, sorry? So, in, in a number of ways. Uh, firstly, it costs more to administer a divergent group of agreements uh, with divergent conditions across a single workforce. How so? So pick any subject under the agreement. If that subject is dealt with across each of the agreements uh, in a different way, then you end up doing one task in a variety of different ways, and that is less efficient. So if an entitlement was addressed in each agreement in a different way, you end up doing one thing 12 different ways. Exactly. So it's a multiplier effect. Uh, if there were fewer agreements, it would reduce the number of ways you need to perform a single task. Doing one task as many as 12 different ways sounds e extremely inefficient. So it is, uh, but it's worth considering uh, that inefficiency in some context. Uh, employees are often expected to find more efficient ways to do their work. The burden of efficiency sits with the staff while inefficiencies from segmented employment arrangements are left to go unchallenged. And whether it's in bargaining or elsewhere, um, there's always talk of productivity. Productivity being the lowering the cost of production or services. And that's a really neat uh, way of, of summarising it. And there are lots of ways to achieve uh, productivity, including through better technology or considering who performs what tasks. But there are obvious opportunities to achieve productivity gains through a more efficient set of industrial arrangements. The cost of complexity also comes up in terms of risk. It certainly can. Uh, in, if there are up to 12 different ways to do one thing, 
there's a greater chance of overlooking something and there being a compliance issue as a result. And it has to be said that risk is really at an unacceptable level at the moment. Uh, absolutely it is. The other point made in the position paper is that a high level of industrial segregation has an equity impact. Yeah, it does. And this is something that we think has been underestimated or, or somewhat overlooked. But how does it have an equity impact? So if you have a large number of uh, agreements that are bargained at different times, the outcomes will likely vary. And if the outcomes vary, then this will impact equity? It has, it has to, absolutely. So it may be a positive or a negative impact, but variability must mean that there is an equity impact of some kind. The issue of industrial segregation was something identified in the baseline report from the Commission of Gender Equality in the public sector, wasn't it? It was, uh, and it was in the context of the drivers of the gender pay gap. Let's provide some basic uh, references to members so they can refer to these resources. The link to the baseline report will be included in the post for this podcast, and we encourage members to go to Chapter 2 of that report, and in particular, page 39, which is a very specific reference. It is a very specific reference. There's a section on that page headed uh, gender pay gaps contribute to and are impacted by other forms of uh, gender inequality. That section outlines four drivers of the gender, uh, the gender pay gap. And just in the interest of, of being as clear as we can about this, we're going to put that paragraph up on screen in its entirety uh, and just go through it. We've uh, emphasised one part of it though. In Australia, conscious and unconscious gender discrimination remains the leading driver of gender pay gaps, accounting for 36% of the gap, down from 39% in 2017. This includes the undervaluation of women's work, and bias in recruitment, promotion and salary decisions. Career breaks, such as taking time out to have children or for other caring responsibilities, are an important contributor to the gap at 20%, as is part-time employment at 11%. Importantly, gender discrimination and stereotype gender norms also influence other significant factors that drive the gender pay gap, such as industrial, and occupational segregation, which together contribute 24%. So industrial and occupational segregation is part of the second biggest component of the gender pay gap, which leads to the obvious question of what to do about it. So the baseline report also ventured a view um, on that question as well, and that's to be found at page 51. And again, we'll bring that up on screen and go through it. Uh, and what the baseline report says is that it's important to acknowledge the significance of the wage setting context for the organisations covered by the Act. That is, notwithstanding the finding that public sector occupations and classifications generally have a narrow pay gap when women and men perform similar roles, defined entities are not the only actors determining pay and pay practices. As identified by a particular report or research, uh, narrowing gender pay gaps across all defined entities will therefore require a unified approach as well as the cooperation and commitment of unions, industry bodies and professional associations, which all play varying roles in establishing rates of pay for different groups of workers. In short, there needs to be cooperation in terms of the setting of industrial conditions. And really with that view to, to considering the equity or gender impact. The issues around complexity and costs are probably pretty well known, but not so much the equity impact. As we were saying before, it is our sense that this is somewhat uh, undervalued or underappreciated. And there's no existing framework for managing equity issues from an agreement perspective. 
And that's a real standout point, I think, from our perspective. There isn't uh, a framework. Uh, there is a noticeable gap uh, in terms of the gender equity framework. Obviously, there's a Gender Equity, uh, a Gender Equality Act 2020. Yeah, and it's, I'll just take an example from the Gender Equality Act, if I could. So one of the requirements of the Gender Equality Act at Section 9 is that uh, a defined entity must undertake a gender impact assessment when developing or reviewing any policy of or program or service provided by entity that has a direct and significant impact on the public. It requires, engagement, so it, it requires engagement with impact uh, and consideration and variations as well as intersectionality. But it's limited to those things with a significant impact on the public rather than the employees of the public sector. That's right. So in a bargaining context, it means that there really isn't a space for considering equity, including gender equity impacts of bargaining outcomes. We do need to acknowledge that there are other tools under the Gender Equality Act, such as the action plans and audits. That's absolutely true. Uh, but the interesting thing about the gender uh, impact assessment is, is that it's not reactive. Uh, it occurs at the start. It's part of the planning process. Uh, and I'm not really sure that there's an equivalent for the bargaining setting. So one of the objectives should be to engage with stakeholders like unions on these issues. Uh, absolutely, that's the case. It's fair to say that this issue is a long-term uh, resident in the too hard basket. Why would a union agree to a process of consolidation? So it's not straightforward, um, but we start with common ground, uh, as we always do. So compliance issues are difficult for everyone. Everyone has an interest in reducing complexity and supporting compliance. But presumably not at any cost. Of course not. Uh, but consolidating agreements isn't going backwards in an overall sense. Indeed, the whole point of bargaining is that people move forward. And that's why people vote in favour of agreements. We should probably acknowledge that bargaining segmentation is one of the drivers of delay for bargaining as well. That's absolutely the case. So having smaller groups bargain reduces the capacity to bargain. And we see that in the length of time that it takes to negotiate some agreements. So negotiations that are prolonged well past the normal expiry date, for instance? Yes, absolutely. One of the reasons that we have prolonged negotiations, one of the reasons could be that the bargaining party doesn't have capacity to bargain efficiently or effectively, which results in delayed outcomes for that staff group, which is unfair. In saying that, we have to acknowledge that some groups do negotiate very efficiently. We do. Uh, we, we've got a real uh, lot of variance in that space. So members will recall in the last round that bargaining for nurses and midwives, for example, and for both medical specialists and doctors in training started and finished on time by way of example. But there are other groups who are still bargaining as much as a year after the nominal expiry date, the date from which it should have been finished. Yeah, so making sure the bargaining is efficient is important. So sometimes parties will criticise employers for the amount of time they take to implement, but generally speaking, uh, the most common source of delay is actually the time of the negotiate that the negotiations themselves take. And our agreements vary in terms of size? Uh, they do. In some instances, bargaining parties um, may see, because of that uh, differentiation in size, they may see an advantage in uh, consolidating. But others may not be as keen. That is true, uh, but it is worth thinking about how often a bargaining party will make a claim to match an outcome from another employee group. And it's often framed in terms of parity or similar. And, and what those claims demonstrate is that bargaining parties are acutely aware of those inequities. 
they may propose a different course to consolidation, but what we would say is that consolidation is a means by which to start addressing potentially some of those equity issues. And can you, so we've received some member feedback, can you summarise the member feedback that we've received today? Oh, we did. So firstly, the amount of feedback we received was a welcome surprise. And what did people say? So members were very keen to indicate that they strongly supported proposals to consolidate agreements. And was anyone opposed to the paper? So we did get one member who made the point about trying to avoid a worst of all worlds approach, which is a, a point well made. Which we appreciate and we'll make an adjustment to reflect the concerns with the paper. But thank you for taking us through the reasons behind the position paper on agreement consolidation and also the member feedback. Thank you, Tim.